This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. In our increasingly aging population, more of us will live longer and are more likely to require some form of surgical procedure, whether minor or major. Now, while surgical techniques and medical care have advanced tremendously to ensure that surgery is safer for older patients, that doesn't mean that these procedures are without risk. So on this episode of Healthy Aging, I'm speaking to Dr. Danupriya Sivapathasundram, consultant geriatrician from Royal London Hospital Bart's Health, about her area of specialty, which is the perioperative management of older adults. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Danu. Thank you so much for inviting me. And perhaps I'll get you to start with um, talking to me about what exactly is perioperative management, right? How did you get into it? So... Uh, I trained in the UK um, as a geriatrician and general internal medicine uh, registrar. And in my final year of training, I worked at Guys and St Thomas's where they had set up a unique perioperative um, service where they managed elective... It started from elective orthopaedic patients, um, older patients, and they saw them in clinic preoperatively with the therapists, um, optimised them and saw them throughout the admission Um, and I got trained in that as a registrar Um, and then I got my consultant job at the Royal London and I was primarily appointed to manage hip fracture patients and that's very well established in the UK that um, older patients who sustain a hip fracture are managed jointly by the orthopaedic surgeon and the geriatric consultant. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a financial incentive in the UK um, such that um, they know that having early surgery for old hip fracture patients is better. So um, if you have the surgery done within 36 hours and you are seen by a geriatrician within 72 hours, as well as some other minor quality points, the hospital gets maybe around £1,400 extra per patient. So that was an incentive that the government brought in. Um, and my job was made from that. Um, and across the country, uh, it has led to improvements in care for older patients having hip fractures. Um, from moving on from that, I then developed some other services within the organisation looking, looking at after other patients with other surgeries. So that's how I ended up in this field. Hmm. And perioperative care sort of refers to the the management before, during and after surgery as well. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So, I mean, there's perioperative medicine is expanding in general, but um, and, and anaesthetists have a big role in that. And hmm. but their role is different to ours. So I'm not trying to be the anaesthetist. They are very interested in it as well. And they look at maybe how to manage patients on the table and in intensive care. What, what our expertise is looking at the geriatric issues that may contribute to bad outcomes. For example, with a hip fracture patient, I'll see somebody who's come into the A&E and they've fallen, um, and we look at why they've fallen for a start, um, and then we want to get them through the surgery safely. Um, And obviously we can't give people a new heart or a new set of lungs or a new kidneys, but we will try and optimise what we can, adjust their medications. Um, For example, if they're got lung disease and there are inhalers I might you know make sure that they've got their inhalers prescribed or change them to nebulizers or add some steroids Um, you know if I think there's a hint of an infection I might treat that more aggressively than I would do normally Mm. um, and then get them through the surgery like that that aspect is obviously the anaesthetist and the surgeon and then we'll see them the next day 
um, and manage their pain control, uh, making sure that early mobilization, preventing complications. And in particular, preventing delirium, which is one mm. of the things that older patients suffer from and that causes a really bad outcome. And then we look at falls prevention and preventing future fractures. So, that, so in the orthopaedic patient, that's the approach we're taking. And often we're the patient, the doctor that's got the looking at the whole pathway mm-hmm. and we're supporting the surgeons getting them home as well, you know. Mm. So now there might have been a time when, you know, adults above a certain age were excluded from surgery simply because of their age, right? They would be deemed as too old or too frail. How has that picture changed today? Are we seeing more older adults undergoing surgery because of advancements in medicine? I think definitely it, um, the population's got older and so more people are having surgery just on population ageing, but also our perception of age has changed, hasn't it? In the past, we might have thought 70 was rather old, mm-hmm. and now we look at 90-year-olds as perhaps the oldest old. And, you know, 70-year-olds are the baby boomer generation. They expect to have surgery. They have greater expectations than previous generations. Mm-hmm. And I do think surgical and medical tech, anaesthetic techniques have evolved to make things more safe, you know, minimally invasive surgery, etc. But the caveat with that is that the patients can often be frailer, with more comorbidities because people are surviving their heart attacks and strokes now and then ending up with um, conditions that need surgery, either fractures or orthopaedic issues like, you know, osteoarthritis or cancers. So we are, I think we are doing more surgeries now, um, but there is probably still a bit of ageism. Um, And I think one of our roles as in this regard, where I think our anaesthetist colleagues, where I work, find our role to be very helpful is we can advise both on ensuring that the right patients have surgery so for example sometimes in patients be offered surgery that's inappropriate for them Mm -hmm. they're very dependent they've got advanced dementia um, and we might have a conversation with the surgeons and say in this case surgery isn't appropriate but on the converse of that we might say look you know this person isn't as frail as you think they are we can manage these comorbidities, but if you did this operation, they might have a better quality of life. So I think we often get asked our opinion on those issues Mm. and the extent of cognitive impairment and capacity as well we get involved with. Mm. There are a couple of things I want to unpack there, but first, Dr. Danu, what kind of surgeries are we typically looking at with older adults? You mentioned hip fractures. I think that's something that a lot of people are familiar with. But what other surgeries do you increasingly see older adults undergoing? Orthopaedic surgery is probably a big group of patients because of falls and other fractures beyond hip fractures. Then elective orthopaedic surgery, the original study I was talking about mm-hmm. when I worked at St Thomas's was done on elective knees and hips. So um, elective total knee replacements and elective hip replacements. Um, we're increasingly involved in those patients. Um, and then obviously cancer surgery, you know, cancer goes up with age. Um, and so we are much more involved in those patients. And in those patients, we often have to make a decision about what optimization can we achieve in the short time period mm-hmm. before someone needs to go for cancer surgery. Whereas a total hip replacement or total knee replacement, we might take our time and make sure the patient is in good shape as possible before we put them through a surgery. Mm, it really depends on sort of the urgency of the surgery. Yes, exactly. So it, it, at the moment, we've evolved. In the last year or so, we've started to do a pre-op clinic mm-hmm. with the anaesthetist. So the anaesthetist and the surgeons will refer us patients and we see them um, in the pre-assessment area um, and we will do a comprehensive geriatric assessment looking at their function, 
their quality of life, their nutrition, all their comorbidities. Um, and then we will put our recommendations of where we can optimise and then we'll bring it back to the anaesthetists and we'll all have a conversation together with the surgeons about whether it's appropriate to have have this operation or not for high risk patients low risk patients they'll just go through and have their surgery but if they're high risk and we want to have a conversation about whether it's right thing to do and how we can get them through we will work together Mm. we have a meeting once a week why are some older adults considered high risk patients when they undergo surgery what is it about their physiology their health conditions that puts them at higher risk so the evidence shows that um, as you get older the more you have more complications um, but the complications that people get are not surgical complications. So if you look at the difference in an older person and a younger person, their chance of getting maybe a wound infection is about the same. But the chance of getting medical complications goes up with age. So after an operation, your chance of getting a heart attack or a stroke or chest infection or blood clots goes up as you get older. And that's because older patients have often more comorbidities. And it's the comorbidities that predict your outcome. So age is a risk factor for doing worse after an operation, but it's really comorbidities and frailty that can predict poor outcome. So that's why his, that's where we people thought that, you know, actually getting a medical doctor to be involved mm-hmm. makes more sense. Mm. So you mentioned that the um, anaesthetist is also closely involved in this, especially during the surgery itself. So then are anaesthesia drugs and painkillers more dangerous in older patients? Yeah, so I, I think any drug... Um, is a great um, can cause more problems the older you get mm-hmm. um, because the way the kidneys and the liver metabolize things alters with age. And so even your blood pressure medications, you know, will need to be altered as you get older because they can be a bit stronger, if I was going to say. So all of the medications are likely to cause more sedative effects as you get older, particularly anesthetics and pain. So we just, but that doesn't mean that you can't have the surgery. It's just something that people need to be aware of. And so mm. that's one of the key things that we do is we will make sure that we the patient has lower dose painkillers and keep an eye on it and then, you know, start low and go slow is what we always say. So we, you know, rather than the usual doses and particularly after an operation, the normal sort of patient controlled analgesia with the button, mm-hmm. older patients may struggle because they can't see it, or they can't use their finger mm-hmm. or they're confused. And so those things don't work as well. So it's just looking at different approaches that are more tailored to the individual patient. Mm. It's all about making sure that they can still access that same quality of care as any other patient, right? Yes, exactly. But making sure it's um, tailored to their individual needs. And I always say that older patients are heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. They're not the same person. You know, the Queen was, you know, very fit into her 90s. um, But there's some other patients who might be 65, but have got advanced dementia and bed bound. So a decision should never be made on age. It should be made on the individual patient, looking at all their comorbidities, their function, their wishes, their quality of life, mm. you know, um, what and what we think we're going to gain from the operation. Mm. I think that that term, that that phrase you mentioned, that older adults are heterogeneous, um, Malaysians are very familiar with that. We see our former Prime Minister, Tun Dr Mahathir, he's 97 and still running to be an MP. And I think that's really an example of how no older adult is the same. It really depends on so many factors. Yeah. Um, let's go for a quick break, Dr Danu, and continue our discussion when we come back. I'm speaking today to Dr Danu Priya Sivapata Sundaram, consultant geriatrician, at the Royal London Hospital and we are discussing the perioperative management of older adults for our Healthy Ageing series. Keep it here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su, and it is our monthly healthy aging series. And today, um, joining me in the studio is Dr. Danupriya Sivapata Sundram, consultant geriatrician at the Royal London Hospital, Butts Health. And she's joining me on the show to discuss the perioperative management of older adults. So that's referring to the pre, during, and post surgical management of older adults. Um, a lot of us used to think that just because someone is older, uh, of an older age, you know, they might not be able to undergo a lot of surgeries. But as we see in an aging population, um, in a population that is getting sicker as well, not necessarily living healthier, more surgeries are required as you get older. Before the break, Dr. Danu was talking about how sort of this um, specialty has come about for her and why older adults are at greater risk when they undergo surgery. Um, before the break, you were talking about certain um, factors that you want to consider if an older adult is fit for surgery. Um, things like um, things beyond their age, you know, their wishes, their their frailty, their their overall physical health. What are the situations where you might look an older look at an older adult patient and deem them unfit for surgery? Are there are there situations like that? Yeah, so um, first of all, I would want to say that um, as a geriatrician, I'm never going to say someone is totally, it's my responsibility to say someone's fit for an anaesthetic or a surgeon, because I, I think it's really important that the surgeon and the anaesthetist make that call. So I don't want any anaesthetist there to think that <laughs> I'm going making these decisions is not the case. They'll often come to us and say, what do you think? Is there anything you can do to make this person safer? Is this the right thing to do? It's collaborative. It's col very much collaborative and it's an MDT approach, multidisciplinary team. Um, and so I think the patients feel that they've had everybody's input before they go in either for to go in for it or to not go in for it. But I think, you know, there are some very, very high risk patients, uh, but it all depends on what surgery you're going for. So I think that's very important. You know, like if it's so in the UK, we and we're very much of the opinion that if that everyone should be offered, for example, hip fracture surgery, unless we think they're about to pass away in the next few days there's you should do it for pain alone mm. so um, even someone who's deemed very high risk with dementia heart failure you know ischemic heart disease um, I think in the 10 years I've looked after hip fractures there's been a handful of patients that we've decided not to operate on because you know the the death around hip fractures is rarely on the table it is within 30 days or within a year and so it's afterwards when they're not mobile because obviously you break your hip you don't mobilize because of the pain you're in bed you develop a chest infection and that's often why people pass away so actually manage, managing that pain is mm -hmm. important and sometimes the only way you can manage it is to do the operation um, so for those patients it has to be a really good reason not to do it um, and that's definitely the vogue now in the UK and we have uh, the metrics I talked about before um, but uh, and you're kind of judged on it as an institution and it's put into a database, the National Hip Fracture Database, if someone wants to look it up and you can see where each organisation um, is on, in terms of those metrics. But you might look at another scenario where you've got a planned surgery for knee, you know, elective knee arthritis. Mm -hmm. So then you've got to think, well, is doing the surgery the right thing for somebody if their risk of dying in a few days afterwards or on the table is high? Um, when it's a planned surgery that's not for cancer. So if someone has got really advanced dementia, they're bed bound, um, they've got heart disease, they've got um, uncontrolled um, heart failure, all these sort of conditions, really bad lungs, it may not be the right thing to do 
um, in those scenarios. And, and then the other area that comes more difficult can be cancer surgery, because obviously we have to weigh up the risks of not doing it and therefore the patient's um, cancer progressing and them dying of the cancer versus the risks around the t- doing a um, high-risk surgery for the cancer, and um, but potentially having some perioperative mortality. Um, and I do find that, you know, when we select the right patients, that they do quite well. And, you know, but it's all about early intensive care for a few days and then somebody on the ward who's a physician getting involved with them. To be honest, I think early physiotherapy is one of the key aspects of recovery for an older person. Mm. Where and, the, and sorry, and this is, is this before or after the surgery? So in the ideal world, we want to do some pre, prehab, you know, some mm getting your legs you know getting your muscles working before surgery but it may not be timely we may not have enough time before cancer operation Mm -hmm. although in our institution there is some we have some exercise physiologists doing some uh, work on older lung cancer surgery patients so they're getting in there a few weeks before the operation getting them trying to get build up their muscles before they go for this big surgery so I mean the evidence around prehab is not as firm but it's growing the data you know the evidence is growing for that um, but I think definitely in sur- after the surgery um, getting early mobilization is key for older patients um, you know getting them up and about uh, that's one of the big factors for recovery I think hmm. from what I understand you know that what you mentioned earlier on about the pre-op clinic and and all you've um, spoken about looking at all their conditions and and what would be the best um, process to determine a good to lead to a good outcome. That's the whole idea. That's the whole thing about reducing those perioperative risks for older adults. Is that right? You yeah, want that's to- right. So the original study that I talked about did has been proven to the uh, geriatrician involvement in these clinics pre-op has shown to reduce length of stay, post-operative pneumonia, delirium, pressure sores. So um, they've done it in elective orthopaedic patients and they've done it in vascular patients who are quite high risk. Mm. Um, and they've done quite well with the geriatrician involvement. And so now it's become quite uh, the thing that everyone wants, a geriatrician in their service. But similar to Malaysia, we do, even though we, I think we do have more geriatricians, we still don't have anywhere near enough. Mm. Um, and so we, we, you know, our geriatrician colleagues need to go work in nursing homes, on the front door, uh, you know, in A and E and stuff. And so then there's to get more of us doing surgery as well is tough because um, there's just not enough of us for the aging population. Mm. And one more thing to add, you also look at the person's um, emotional and mental state prior to surgery because it's obvious, right, that your physical health matters. But what about your emotional and mental health? We we definitely do. So we use a a sort of framework as geriatricians called comprehensive geriatric assessment. And that sort of systematically goes through all these different issues, your function, um, your cognition, your medications, your incontinence, um, your mood um, and we try to look at them all and then we offer try to offer some solutions for each one and though taking this approach has been shown to improve outcomes in older patients um, sometimes we don't say today I'm doing comprehensive geriatric <laughs> assessment but intuitively that's what we're doing we're working our way through a list and we try and address each individual thing um, to improve outcomes because you're absolutely right if someone's not motivated they're not going to participate in physiotherapy afterwards. Mm. And one of the other things that we do, I think, in the pre-op clinic is counsel families about outcomes, because they need to be realistic that usually if you are fit and you go through an operation, like if we go through an operation, after the surgery, we might feel a bit tired, but we're Mm. likely to get up and go and do well. But the frailer you are, each insult 
means that you're harder to you you have um, can have a greater impact on your function. So your ability to res respond to changes is harder. So if somebody is mobile without a stick, they may come out of hospital with a stick. Mm. If they were with a stick to start with, they may need a frame or and they may need more help. And so I do counsel them and say, you know, at least in the first six weeks, you might see a functional decline and that we must then try and build that up. Um, and it, it, the more frail you are, the more difficult that recovery process is likely to be. And, so let's talk about that recovery process, um, managing complications, right? You've sort of touched on it um, throughout our conversation, but from what I understand, perioperative complications could include um, cardiac and non-cardiac complications, um, if I could categorize it that way. Could you briefly explain um, some of these, I guess, what would fall under a cardiac complication and a non-cardiac complication? So I guess, you know, those, or if you have had ischemic heart disease before, you're at a risk of having a, an event, cardiac event, around the surgery or after the surgery. But um, I think they're not as com common as uh, we might worry about. Mm -hmm. I think the most common complication I see is that patients get delirium. So they get more confused after the surgery, and that confers not a very good outcome, I'm afraid. Why is that? Because... If you imagine you come out of an operation and you've got this fog, this confusion, then you're less likely to follow instructions for physio. You're more likely to stay in bed. You're more likely to get infections. Um, and so your recovery process is much longer. And then it's a bit of a cycle. So you're more likely to get more complications. Um, so many of the things that we try to do is to minimize delirium. Mm. So we say, for, I say to family members, and so the people that are more risk of delirium are people who've got pre-existing cognitive impairment who are older, who've had a history of alcohol intake, for example, or head injuries or a previous stroke. Mm -hmm. And then is it the surgery? Is it the anaesthetic? It's, it's a combination of both. The sort of inflammation around all of that can increase an older person's chance of getting delirium. Um, and so what I try to, and, and it, you know, you come into hospital, you've not got your glasses on, you've, you've lost your hearing aids. Um, those things help, you know, being able to see and hear properly, Sometimes I say to people, put some posters around to say that when your relative wakes up, they can see I'm in the hospital, put familiar pictures and stuff. And, you know, in Malaysia, I know people come to visit very often. So mm -hmm. that helps coming in to see your relative, reorientating them. You're in hospital. You've familiar just, faces, familiar things. Yeah. And reorientating them, minimizing moves around the hospital, mm -hmm. you know, familiar food, you know, saying who you are. Um, there's a big campaign in the UK to have badges where people say, hello, my name is, mm -hmm. because patients don't often know who they're speaking to. The doctor comes and goes and nobody introduces themselves. And so it's really disorientating. And for a younger patient, that's difficult. But for an older person, it can be catastrophic. This like disorientation syndrome, delirium, and mm -hmm. it can lead to people more likely to die. You're more likely to be institutionalised. You're more likely to stay in hospital. So that's the biggest complication I see post-operative delirium and that's one of the and medications is what we look at to try and minimize that if i could ask you a bit more about cardiac complications right it's not that common but what are the complications that you are worried about and how dangerous are they 
Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm not saying that they aren't common, but I guess the patients that I get referred are, they have they have survived, you know, um, the surgery itself if they've had a cardiac event on the table mm. um, and they come to us because they're delirious. But in my experience, the number of cardiac events on the table, which is what people worry about, mm. you, you know, you go on the table, you may not survive it, is much less than people passing away within 30 days on a, on a general ward. So, um, but yeah, there is always a risk, I guess, if you have known heart disease, going under the stress of anesthesia or surgery of having a, you know, an arrhythmia or a blockage on, on the table, there's always a risk. So then you have to look at what medications they are. Are they, are they on the right medications? Have we looked at their ECG before? And then I think that side of things is definitely an anesthetic call. Mm. What, med- you know, I think they need to decide because that's the, they're seeing the acute risk. So in our setting, we also have a cardiologist in our perioperative meeting Mm -hmm. so that we will run through the high-risk patients with them and sometimes he might say well you know what for this patient they need to have an angiogram pre-op but it's not as common as I think because some of them will say look you know this is where we're at with the cardiac side of things we can't change anything Mm -hmm. but if we still think the surgery needs to happen because it's for cancer or pain and the quality of life then let's take a chance we all we all agree it's high risk we counsel the family and then we go ahead. Mm. And I think, you know, we've touched wood, we've had okay outcomes. I think we all worry about them and it's right to worry. And as long as everybody's aware, um, if it's still the right thing to do, we can go ahead. Again, with how common heart diseases are um, in a population that has increasing burden of NCDs, it, it again highlights the importance of a multidisciplinary team, like you mentioned, Dr. Zanu. Um, and what is then the burden of perioperative complications? I guess, how many older adults do you see dying prematurely or requiring long-term care when the perioperative complications aren't well-managed? I mean, it's significant, you know... Um I keep going back to hip fractures, but that's because they're the most well studied. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, historically, I think the mortality for hip fractures used to be 10% at 30 days and 30% at one year in the UK. Um, since the advent of geriatricians being involved um, and early surgery, I think that mortality has come back down to about 6% at 30 days. But our 30, one year mortality is still reasonably high. So, it does reflect that the patients are quite frail. But um, I think I suppose now people still get complications, but they're probably managed better because they've got early access to a physician. Whereas in the past, no disrespect to my surgical colleagues, perhaps they'd have to then call the on-call physician, Mm. ask them to come. Whereas now they're usually, it's much more collaborative. We used to have, I used to admit the hip fractures under my name. So they were joint care. Mm. So my team of physicians will be seeing them as well as the surgeons. So it's a very comprehensive service. So... You know, um, after the operation's done, you see, there's not much more for the orthopaedic surgeon to do. And then after that, it's, it's re- you know, recuperative rehabilitation. Mm. If well managed, then how does it impact the patient's outcomes when you sort of prepare for all this potential post-operative complications? I think, you know, well, it's been shown by other studies. And I, I think I, I've seen it in my hip fracture group. We've managed to reduce the time spent in hospital by about 20 days and reduce the mortality by half in our patient group, you know, by just this tight. It's very hard to say what we do as geriatricians because it's very small changes that make a difference. I might just reduce one drug by a little bit, the painkillers, and that would have made a difference. Mm. Um, you know, taking the catheter out early, Sometimes patients think that, and, you know, other healthcare professionals think that, you know, monitoring people is really good, you know, having the drips up and the catheters in. But actually, these are sources of infection. 
They're sources of agitation for the confused patient and they can... So de-escalating the medicine after the surgery is what can often allow improved recovery. Mm. It's really about looking at the little things that and, and the little things that can make a huge difference in the patient's outcomes. Yeah, exactly. So it's small things. Take the catheter out, get the bowels working, get them eating and drinking normally, take the drip down, reorientating them, making sure they can hear, making sure they can see you, um, and then getting them up, sitting in the chair. Those things can make a real big difference. So we, we lead on that with the MDT. You know, it's not just us, it's but us guiding the, the nurses and the therapists to get patients moving mm. and we've seen that that improves outcomes. Mm. You know Dr Danu when we've spoken to geriatricians here in Malaysia they've also emphasised this need to um, work together that they need to collaborate and work in a team with surgeons, uh, anaesthetists, other specialists but it's not always easy because of how much strain there is in the public health setting and, and how busy they are. So how do we streamline this assessment process if we if we don't have enough geriatricians involved? Um, because in the UK, right, you mentioned you have more geriatricians, but there's also not enough, right? So what can we learn? I think, it, you know, two-thirds of a UK hospital are above the age of 65. So I'm involved in the medical school, and, you know, we only get three weeks in a geriatric curriculum, and yet the population is ageing. And mm -hmm. so I often start my lecture programme with, you know, I am a geriatrician, but I cannot be responsible for looking after every older person. It's a responsibility of all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, unless you do paediatrics or obstetrics, you are going to always look after older people. So every, all doctors need to have basic skills and looking after an older person and I think starting with that is first do no harm so every drug you prescribe could potentially cause harm in an older person and I think that's a simple thing you know a surgical junior doctor looking after an older person when they write the normal painkillers they need to think is this the right dose for an older person because you give too high a dose then the patient becomes confused or constipated and causes more problems. So it's about education. I think it's about developing protocols around the older patients so that the basics can be done by somebody else and then the more complex patients we can get involved in because we can't see everyone. Mm. So then if we turn back to family members, right? You mentioned that counselling is an important part of it because family members, caregivers, they'll be a huge part of the patient's recovery process. What can they do to help optimise recovery after surgery? I think it's encouraging people to participate in the therapy and bringing in, you know, as I said, bringing in familiar items, giving them the food they want, um, um, setting expectations that it's going to take time as well, you know, because I think some really fit older people get very frustrated when they can't go back to what they were. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's setting expectations it's going to get time um, as well. Does Planning that... around the home environment that, you know, mm -hmm. they may not be what they were, so they might need more equipment, um, you know, single level living so they don't have to go up and down stairs mm. you can plan for that and then if they do recover you can go back to what they were but um understanding that the, at that time that their mobility has changed and so the accommodations need to be made exactly and getting people out of institutions is important i think mm. institutions create harm for older patients the more chance of infections um, and confusion so i think we're very into early discharge in the uk because we know that patients do bad in hospitals so being prepared that actually staying in hospital is not the solution. That being in your own environment can be better for recovery and the physio come to your own home. That may be more challenging in Malaysia. I don't know how much 
mm. people have in terms of community physio. Mm. I, I think um, in terms of allied healthcare, that's um, been sort of a, a growing but still quite a niche field here in Malaysia. A lot of people can't necessarily afford it as well. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about that for a bit, right? How important is those kind of supportive care things like physiotherapy, occupation, occupational therapy, or even speech therapy for patients post-surgery? Okay, hugely important. I think, you know, I think... What we do is minimal compared to what they do because it's mm-hmm. you know early physio you know so one of the targets for the be- uh, for hip fracture care has a new target that's been added in the last few years is that day one they have to see a physiotherapist because they need to be out of bed by day, day one. one day one and the thing about hip fracture surgery what we say is that you can fully weight bear on day one um, which is I'm not sure standard. Here, I was talking to some family members about that, but my surgeon's very much into day one mobilizing, day mm-hmm. one sitting out in the chair, um, and that improves your outcome more because you're breathing properly, you know, you're less likely to get infections. Those are things that are more important than, you know, the risk around the, the small chance about the metal work breaking down. The surgeons hearing this may not be very happy when I say <laughs> this, but we have conversations. I think they've come round to my way of, it's not my way of thinking, it's the practice in the UK that we realise that, you know, mobilising is far more important Mm. for older patients' long-term recovery. In your clinic, what sort of concerns do you usually hear from family members or caregivers about what they can or can't do um, with an older adult after they're discharged? Um, I guess we're quite lucky in that the therapists do go out and support. And so they they have a lot of support from the therapist. It all depends on which surgery, really. You know, the difficult surgical uh, post-op instructions are when surgeons will say non-weight bear or partial weight bear mm. because I can barely stand on one leg and so if you're asking an older adult who's already got some postural instability with arthritis or maybe some cognitive impairment asking them to balance on one leg it doesn't really work so you've almost uh, put them into bed because they can't do that so those instructions can be very difficult for older patients to follow um yeah, so th- those sort of post-op instructions, what they can do tends to be, it, it really depends on what surgery they have. Mm. You know, abdominal surgery has a lot of complications and mm-hmm. can take longer to recover um, because of, you know, just the nature of it. So it's on a case-by-case basis. So you have to work out. And that's what's really, I think that's one of the most important take-home messages should be that every case needs to be looked at on the patient, their comorbidities and the surgery. You know, mm. so it's very hard to write sort of generic protocols on what um, what should be done. Hip fractures, I think, is a bit easier because they are you know, a bit more homogenous in some ways. Mm. And uh, would you have a final takeaway then for the people who are caring for older adults? You know, perhaps what should they discuss or ask their doctors if their loved ones need to consider surgery? Yeah, I think, you know, I, as a geriatrician, I'm very much an advocate for my patients. I don't want them to get denied care based on age. It's very important. But at the same time, you have to be pragmatic and look and say, is this the right thing for my loved one who has got advanced dementia, whose quality of life isn't very good? Because if if that sort of patient goes through surgery, their cognitive decline might be worse afterwards. And so they might be more dependent. And so we have to look at what that's, benefit that surgery offers them so something like as I said a elective knee operation for arthritis doing an operation like that may make them cognitively worse whereas if they've got terrible pain from an acute fracture we should be pushing to have that done because they are likely to die from that because of the pain and immobility so 
I would say, you know, push for what you think your relative needs, but mm. be aware that, you know, what their function is like may not be the right thing to do if they are very, very dependent. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Danu. Yeah, thank you very much. I hope that was helpful. I've been speaking to Dr. Danu Priya Sivapata Sundaram, consultant geriatrician at the Royal London Hospital, Bart's Health, on the importance of um, perioperative management for older adults before and after they go into surgery. I'm Lim Suen, and this has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.